how do you create something that's a good product? Because you can have a wonderful Michelin star restaurant, a single restaurant. Yeah. But can that restaurant repeat itself? Can it therefore scale? And then can it be predictable? Welcome back to another episode of Design Lab. This is Bon Koo. And on this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Last week, we did not drop a new podcast. It's because my producer, Rob Paglisi, and I have been operating pop-up vaccine sites in the city of Philadelphia. We had a great pop-up on Sunday. We did it with one of my favorite restaurants in Philadelphia called South Philly Barbacoa. The owners of the restaurant are Christina and Ben. They are real pillars in that community. And by partnering with them, they helped us to reach people who were not yet vaccinated because they are trusted in that community. Their restaurant was featured on the Netflix show, Chef's Table. You got to watch it. Christina's journey is amazing. It was so much fun to eat barbacoa and give out vaccines uh, right in front of the restaurant. I am going to do my best to try to drop a new episode each week. I don't know if that's going to happen because we have been working literally seven days a week operating vaccine sites and planning for them. It's been exhausting but rewarding at the same time because getting more shots into arms is going to reduce the number of COVID cases in this country and get us back to an existence where we can all hang out, go out to restaurants and do the things that we love to do before the pandemic. I'm so excited about today's guest. He is redesigning where and how we receive healthcare. Richard Park MD is a healthcare investor, entrepreneur, and a board-certified emergency medicine physician. In 2010, he founded and became the CEO of CityMD, which is an urgent care practice with over 130 locations and 650 physicians in the greater New York area. In 2019, CityMD merged with Summit Medical Group and expanded to over 200 locations, 1,500 physicians, and 70 medical and surgical specialties. He is the co-founder of Ascend Capital Partners. It's a middle market growth private equity fund investing in healthcare service providers. Rich Park happens to be a friend of mine. We haven't connected in years, so it was so good to be able to catch up with him. Rich was my chief resident back in training in New York City. He is one of the smartest and hardest working people that I know. He's an amazing doctor. I'm honored to call him my friend. As a reminder, we don't have any sponsors for the show yet, but you as a listener can still support the show, and it's easy to do. Go to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars, and even better, leave us a review. And don't forget to follow us on whatever platform you use to consume podcasts. And now, here's my conversation with Rich Park. Richard Park, welcome to Design Lab. So good to have you on. Good to see you again, Bond. Hear from your voice. Yeah, Rich. You started something called City MD back in 2010. And for those who don't live in New York City and who don't know what that is, explain to the listeners what City MD is. Sure. City MD is an urgent care chain, about 140 locations here in New York and New Jersey. And there's some crazy stat that maybe like almost like a third of New Yorkers have visited 
a city MD. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. If the metropolitan area is about 15 million people, we've seen six and a half million unique patients and 17 million unique patient visits. Okay, that is wild. So I want to get into City MD more and the origin story of that and what you're up to these days. But for the listeners, I know Rich really well. We went to college together at Penn. And I wanted to share this funny story because we all hung out in the same crew and then you were never around on weekends. And we was like, where's Rich? You know, and we're all like hanging out on weekends because you would go back home to New York City because you're running a one hour photo store. Like, and we're like, what is he doing? And then you were always talking about developing photos. So what was that about? Like, what is a one hour photo store for those who are younger and who don't know how to don't know what that was like and why did you start that oh my gosh i don't know if i can go back into what one hour photo is <laughs> but you know, prior to digital camera we used to take photos on on a canister of film and drop it off at a photo finishing store and to develop handheld prints so after high school i didn't go to college right away i took a year off and in that time i started a one hour photo store i opened up on 83rd and 2nd avenue we opened up a one-hour photo store, but I think you've been there, and I'm, I'm sure you've been there. You the know. Upper East Side of Manhattan. So, yeah. We actually ultimately moved it to 77th and Lex, and so it's a one-hour photo store, and that's where I would go back and over 10 years do that. And it's interesting enough that all these years later, I had three careers, 10 years in one-hour photo, 10 years in emergency medicine, and then 10 years in one-hour medicine. Mm. And urgent care is very similar to the skill set and the mindset of a one-hour photo operator. Because with some of these Photoshops, you would have to drop off this canister of film and it'd be like a day or two or three days later that you would actually get your prints of your photos, right? So like one-hour photo is very gratifying. You go in like, wow, I get my prints like right away. That, that was like pretty, like it was a different model for that industry, right? And I think that experience growing up as an immigrant, we're all a creature or a product of our backgrounds, no matter who you are. You think you are of yourself, you're not. <laughs> you have your background, your culture. And so growing up as a Korean immigrant in New York City, what we did was every Korean member and friend I knew was a merchant. Mm -hmm. Their fathers had stores, so their parents had stores. You'd open, you close, and you take a hammer up, you put up drywall, you pay rent, and you sell things. And so early on, all of us kids in Flushing growing up, knew how to look at real estate. We would look outside and see the garbage outside a store and a lot of garbage outside a restaurant. Bon, you would know this. Yeah. Right? A lot of garbage outside a restaurant means, oh, successful restaurant. <laughs> and so you would know, hey, that corner is a great corner because that restaurant's doing well. And that restaurant, ooh, I don't think it's going to make it. And sure enough. And so that sort of proclivity based on our culture is what made us, those of us that started City Me jump, rent a store and do one-hour medicine. And it's the same skill set and comfort level. Now, we wish, of course, that our parents, that our family was in real estate or in high finance, but that was not our lot. So we think it's us, but it's not really us. We were driven into emergency medicine and driven into urgent care. Yeah, both, both our parents are Korean and immigrants. But I'm nowhere nearly as successful as you, man. <laughs> so you, but you still have this like entrepreneurial mindset, right? But like my parents, they owned, they work in flea markets. They own a restaurant in Newark, New Jersey. So they're always starting businesses. But 
I don't know. I didn't want to have any part of that. Like I, it was, it seemed like too stressful for me. You know, I was like, I'm going to become like a physician. It just seems like less crazy. And, but how, like, what was it with you having being so entrepreneurial at such an early age? Cause you were like 17 when you started up this business in Manhattan, right? But I remember us during our summers in the dorm talking about your background as well. It's fascinating. You totally understand what I'm talking about. No fear, I guess. Hmm. You know, most physicians would have a fear. No, they would have the good common sense not to sign a lease. Hmm. When you don't know any better, and that's because you've seen it done and that's what you do, you don't have the fear and the caution. You throw caution to the wind. And so the one I photo was a, an example of that, as was our first urgent care. Mm. And had, had I known any better, if I knew then what I know now, I would never have done CityMD. Not, no way. Really? Wait, why, why is it? Because it was like, too, it's too risky? It's too risky. It was not worth the risk. Mm. And I had a stable job in the ER, two kids at the time. And why would you take all that debt on, open a store where they could have, as easily as it could have done well, as well as it's done, it could have easily gone the other way. I was thinking the same thing. So I remember if this was like, I think 2005, you were, we both did residency at Long Island Jewish Medical Center, which is part of the Northwell system. Now uh, you were my chief resident and you were one of the best doctors I've trained with. I mean, you were compassionate, super efficient, uh, super intelligent. And then when you told me you had bought this property or you, you were starting up this urgent care thing, which back then was like a pretty new concept. And I remember you took me to a place right near where we train and to a clinic that you were building. And I was thinking, is this guy crazy? <laughs> like, what is he doing? Can you, can you tell me about that first urgent care that you started and like how that came to be? Yeah, I had certainly partners, more senior doctors as partners than who they are. And we, four of us started STAT-MD Urgent Care. Mm -hmm. It was 1,500 square feet. We did that entire construction for under $100,000, which is just ridiculous. And wow. we, uh, it looked like it too. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I locked in. I was like, this doesn't look that nice. Dude. <laughs> it, looks, it looks like a shack, right? It was a shack. But that's where we learned. We learned and we learned. And that's nothing comes easy. You have to learn it. So that was a great learning experience. It was a lot of fun. It's exciting. What, was that hard to, you know, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I was thinking, wow, he is such a great emergency medicine physician. Like, what is he doing? Like, why? Like, you were such a great physician. And I was like, you're starting this business? Like, what compelled you to do that? Right. And like you, what drove me to medicine was, I, I remember in the photo store, my dad told me, son, I've seen you in this business. I've seen you care for customers. And I can tell you without a doubt, you should not be in business school. <laughs> so, I mean, for, without a doubt, I, I know you, I've raised you, I've changed your diapers. I'm telling you, you do not belong in business because I had uh, matriculated to Penn's undergrad business school. Yeah, you're at Wharton. Yeah, right. And so I said, you're, you're probably right. And I ended up soul searching and ending up in medicine because Bert Bell, one of these doctors that lived in the building was a customer, the Bell Commission, which, which is the reason why interns don't work ungodly mm -hmm. hours these days, got me into Albert Einstein College of Medicine. So long story short, I went to medicine for the same reason, safety. I didn't like the chaos of opening stores, closing stores. I, 
I wanted something secure and safe that good for the world. I also like emergency medicine like you, like many of us, because uh-huh. it was sort of jack of all trades and it was so democratic. It didn't matter who you were, what you came in for, whether you were a billionaire or you were a pauper, we took care of everyone. And I thought without regards to pay, at least in the academic center. And so it was an incredibly democratic, in back- retrospect, the democratic nature of the emergency department appealed to me. Totally. I, I love that. But I, I just think it's funny that you went, you said you can handle like the stress of entrepreneurship and you went into a calmer field like emergency medicine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't the stress of the hunter. He just said that you're an immense people pleaser. It says not so many words uh-huh. and you're not going to take someone's nickel, right? Yep. You're going to lose in every transaction. That's just their nature. It's not a, it's not a, it wasn't meant as a criticism. It's just who you are. Your nature is not such that you're going to take. You're a giver, yeah, not a taker. Totally. So I have two handicapped children. And the reason why I would have stayed in the ER forever. I love the emergency room, as you know. Yeah. So much great colleagues, great. It was an incredible time. I look back every minute of it very fondly. But having handicapped children, the plan was just to have a little thing in the side, mm-hmm. in urgent care practice, so my kids could be taken care of. Mm-hmm. We are now 22 now and 20 this year. Mm-hmm. That's all it was. And that kind of grew and took on a life of its own. So there was no grand master plan. Things often, at least for me in my case, happened to me or inflicted upon me rather than anything being strategic or grandiose, vision, mission oriented. Well, it doesn't surprise me that CityMD just grew into this amazing, really like a sort of like a healthcare delivery system for many New Yorkers. And what was the secret sauce behind that? Because there's a lot of, now everyone knows what urgent care is. There's so many different types of urgent care. Not ur- not all urgent cares are created equal. There's some pretty bad ones uh, out there. And what was the secret sauce behind CityMD? Like wh- why did it, why was it wildly popular? So I don't think it's a simple answer. I think there's a lot of factors. How do you create something that's a good product because you can have a wonderful Michelin star restaurant, single restaurant, but can that restaurant repeat itself? Can it therefore scale? And then can it be predictable? And that's Mm -hmm. what a McDonald's is Mm -hmm. versus a per se, a Michelin star restaurant. So how do you create something that is repeatable, scalable, and predictable? First of all, you have to have something that's worthwhile repeating. And that's one concept. So there's a lot of pieces to it. I would say we thought a little bit outside the box, mm-hmm. a little bit. Let me maybe back up. Number one, things that you can't control, timing. It was 2008, 2009, market crashed. The real estate market softened and we could actually rent something that was affordable in Manhattan. Mm. Right. I had no part in that. I assure you, no part in that. In the <laughs> economic class, right? Number one. Number two, you meet great people and Physicians tend to only work with other physicians, and that's mm-hmm. to our detriment because a physician can't be good at all things. Mm-hmm. And so very early on, we had partners who were not physicians. Mm-hmm. I had a creative person that thought design, and we had a, a CTO, a, a computer data person that understood the importance of data and structure. And then just random good doctors that just, for whatever reason, not me, but had good business sense. You know, like Nadal and Dave Shee and these doctors that yeah. Dave Kim, a bunch of them. They're not your typical doctors now. Yeah. And there were great physicians, like so many people from that I train with. And so this goes on and on. And so 
we had this incredible cadre of people that we trusted prior to CityMV even. And so how do you recreate? And I could, we can do that now if we wanted to. So a lot of good things had to happen. And finally, we were born in New York City. If I was born in South Jersey and did this in South Jersey, that would not have worked. So a lot of these things were outside of control. There was no grand strategy. New York City, in retrospect, happened to be an incredible place because of the fractured nature of healthcare. Mm-hmm. It's an important city, multiple large, very powerful union-dominated hospital systems with a fractured uh, a pair system. Pair fractures, fragmentation, hospital fragmentation. That is an opportunity that you can work with. What, what, is, what, is that, what does that mean for those who aren't in like the healthcare space? So we understand that the U.S. system is so broken, but what, what was it like then for a patient in New York City to get care? Like what were the ramifications for having that fractured system? So I will use, let's use New Jersey as an example. Uh-huh. Town right across the river, not far from where we are. Had we started in New Jersey, we probably would not have succeeded. Really? Huh. Because New Jersey is 60%, 40 to 60%, depending where you are, Horizon Healthcare, the insurance plan. And so when that's the only plan in town or essentially the biggest plan in town, you have very little leverage. You're a price taker. As opposed to being in New York, <coughs> where there's four or five almost equal hospital systems payer groups, you can get better rates because everybody wants to compete and everybody wants to win for your patients. Mm. So being born in America, you don't plan that. You don't get, you don't have a say in that. We're born in the greatest country on earth. We didn't do it by ourselves. We happen to be lucky. Happened to be born in New York. So those are the biggest factors. Those are the extrinsic sort of macro things that you have no yeah. control over. So anyone that thinks they've done it all by themselves and that they're incredible, you have to really think again, all right? So there's a lot of luck involved that you have no control over. I also think the experience as a patient was a different one. And especially when you had started that the whole designing that patient experience was, was an important one. Like where, where, did, that, where did that come from? So with that being said, we had one of our partners, Calvin, in particular Calvin Wang, who was, you know, studied architecture at college and was a marketer. And again, a bunch of us, but we thought outside the box. So when we first opened the office, we were told by our architect, you can't build it like this. You don't, you can't do it on the first floor. No one does that, right? So no one does that. The counters can't be that low. It has Mm -hmm. to be higher. The windows have to be frosted. Nobody wants to see through the window to the back of the store like most retail. You can't, you can't, you can't. No one does this, no one does this. And so the question was like, why not? And so to have physicians that are basic conservative take that extra approach with design and making it a more retail experience was relatively new at that time. We would pre- And were you involved in those like small, intricate decisions? You have to be right early on. So that's called a product. How do you make something that's acceptable and then... What next happens is how do you make it repeatable and scalable? And that's a different conversation. But the product initially has to be worthwhile mm-hmm. and differentiated. You have to, you can't, you have to stand out. Don't be this, don't do the same thing as everyone else. And then how did you scale it? Like, cause that is such a hard thing to do. Cause would you have been able to scale it if you started CDMD today in 2021 to that big? I think the lessons of scale are universal and industrial. 
mm-hmm. but very few um, people practice it in medicine. So, so we did a, a bunch of things that made it a little bit unique. We were exceptionally patient, consumer experience, hospitality focused, and that was our mind, mindset. Even our marketing, everyone said you can't market on the subways. No one does that. It's beneath us as physicians. Absolutely did, and I think that paved the way for a lot of other healthcare. Of there was always some healthcare on subways, but those of you know questionable repute. But to make it acceptable and trendy, and mm-hmm. so we did a lot of things like that. Not because we were doctors, but because we had non-physicians. Mm-hmm. So physicians have to work and partner with non-physicians on an equal footing. Number one. So we did that. How do we scale? How do you get doctors or providers to work together? It's there's a lot of pieces to that, from HR to culture. To, but one of the things that we did, I think, uniquely was because Steve Kang was our CTO. He had built what we call a CRM, a customer relationship management tool, a dashboard. Okay. Yeah. Where every employee, by the time I left 3,500, everyone is looking at this nonstop all day, every day. And this causes a unification, a mind melt. Everyone knows that promoter score, wait times, patients per hour. These three or four metrics is what everyone is focused around. And to get 650 providers to variance control around those three things, that's what quality is. And so how do you get physicians to repeat a process, to standardize workflows, therefore standardize data that can now be collected and the manual structure on top to manage it? Physicians, architects, social workers, all professionals Mm. don't like to be put into the same box. They like to be unique. Yeah. I, I would hate that. Yeah. So, so doctors don't like to be standardized. I understand that. But that lack of standardization, that partnership mentality makes things a little bit different. Partners, by definition, do things similarly, but a little different. Mm. You can't repeat something and therefore you can't scale something that is different. Mm. And so one of the lessons we learned at CityMV is the religiousness, religiosity, tenacity to standardization of workflow hmm. allows you to quickly go from one site to three sites to 10 sites to 20 sites, 50, 100 without feeling the ramifications of it. Now, that doesn't happen in other sectors of healthcare, like academic medicine, for example, that sort of like standardization of performance. I think most partners, most professionals, not just doctors, it's unfair mm-hmm. to just pick on us, but architects, we're all artists. Yeah. And artists don't like to be put in the same box. So it's knowing what to standardize, what you can give on, because working with doctors are like feeding deers. But you got to, you have to, <laughs> it's, it's really, True. how do you get providers to work together? And, and it, it's through dashboards. And there's a lot that goes into that. And the typical physician shouldn't know, or wouldn't know how to deal with that unless you partnered with a non-physician that understood mm. and you listen and you work together. It's a symphony of professionals. You know the healthcare space so well, and I feel like the entire system seems like it's blowing up, like literally, and, and especially we've, we've gone through this pandemic and still in it. And I'm wondering from your perspective, looking at the future of healthcare, do you have any predictions on where things are going to go in in the redesign of the delivery of healthcare or what's going to stick? Like, is it 
telemedicine and kind of curious to know from your thoughts of the trends that you see and how healthcare is going to be, how healthcare is going to look 10, 20 years from now. It would be a pretty useless prediction because everyone will have one. And, you know, we're not getting better fast enough. So we're losing ground every day. So more water is coming into the boat than we can empty. So what does that tell you? We're going to sink. At the current pace, we're not going to survive. And so everyone is trying to die last or make as much of whatever they can off the system. So that's, so how do we fix that? Because it's just a matter of time, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of time. And I don't know the answer to that. I, I do suspect that it has to be something catastrophic before society makes a determination or rationalization, rationing healthcare. I, I suspect- Wasn't the pandemic catastrophic enough? Like I thought things were going to change differently, but now I, I work in the emergency room. Interesting. It's still the same, right? Like we're putting patients in hallways or six hour waits. We're going diversion because the volumes are so high. And I was like, oh my gosh, a global pandemic couldn't, couldn't blow up this system and help us to redesign the system? I know you would think something like, like a world war or a pandemic of this nature, you would think. Maybe because it's so smeared across all industries, but eventually when, you know, it's a, it's a lot of economics. If, yeah, if we spend more, we much more, if it outpaces everything else, not, it, can't, it can't survive. So I, I do suspect there has to be some sort of, it's not a doctor thing to fix. It is not, it is a, a culture. It is an ethos of America is what we value. I think it'll have to be a government answer. Mm. And in a government answer, what is important is organized physician practices. Mm. In the commercial world, organization is not. When the employer pays for the healthcare, a pack-like wolf pack mentality is profitable and makes sense. In a Medicaid, Medicare, or government-sponsored plan, Organization, working like a hive of bees mm -hmm. or a colony of ants, organization becomes really important. Organized physician practices or provider practices require dashboards and management structure. It requires systems. It requires workflow. There's so many things that go into creating a simple dashboard, quote unquote, that I, I fear we have to promote more organized, structured physician groups. Mm in this new world of government pairs. We talked about scale before and scaling for like efficiencies and performance. How, how do we scale for compassion and empathy in healthcare? Because I think there's a lot of doctors who are burned out. And, and I, I remember as a resident, even talking to you, I was feeling kind of a little burnt out during residency. I was like, oh, should I stick in emergency medicine, Rich? And you're like, of course, this is like the best specialty ever. You should totally s stick with it and go through. Like, what else would you do? 15 years later, I'm still working in the ER. Yeah, I'm curious. What, what do you think? How do, how do we make, how do we do that? How do we do that? I, me? I don't know. You're the expert, man. <laughs> I'm asking you. <laughs> like, I, you know, I think, you know, part of it's giving doctors the time to be with their patients, to have those conversations with their patients. And I know you, you had given your like cell phone out to patients a lot and they would like call you at all hours, but it's not sustainable. I mean, you're one of the most hardest working people that 
I know. And it seems like in order to spend time with patients, to have those conversations, to be still with them, that unless you're willing to punish yourself with sleep deprivation for the rest of your life, that's not possible in the current system that, that we have. And I think, ah, yeah, I think, I think about this a lot because I work a lot with medical students and pre-meds and they all have good intentions for going into medicine, but then I see just many people just getting burned out and disillusioned and not having the ability to practice empathy and compassion. So my first memories of seeing a doctor was uh, a guy named Dr. Kim. And at that time, you know, we couldn't afford to go to a doctor, let alone buy a slice of pizza. That was 75 cents, whatever it was at the time. And I had fallen off a slide and I hurt my tailbone and I didn't tell my parents because, you know, it was a hundred bucks, I think, back then to see a doctor. Mm-hmm. Even back then it was a hundred bucks, which is yeah. a lot, right? Yeah. Over 40 years ago. So, so I, did, I sat in bed and I, and I was in bed and didn't go anywhere before my dad realized something's wrong. So he took me to Dr. Kim. And all the while I'm thinking, oh gosh, I hurt the family. How much is this going to cost? That was what occupied my mind. So Dr. Kim took care of me. I remember everything about that exam room in his house. It was late at night, basement. It was one of those old fashioned doctors. Yeah. Took care of me. Broken t- Now I know that you know, can't do anything for broken tailbone, but he listened to my heart, listened to it, just put the entire stethoscope, the entire <laughs> show, right? And uh, I left feeling so much better. He gave me basically some NSAIDs, I believe. I don't remember, but I remember getting something and feeling better. And I also remember distinctly my dad being taken to a corner of the exam room and Dr. Kim talking to him. And as we were leaving, I asked my dad, how much did that cost? I was terrified. And he said, Dr. Kim said it was for free. Don't worry about it. And I so appreciated that. Even as a little kid, I remember, wow, he took my dad to a corner of the room to respect him in front of his son so as not to humiliate him. So Dr. Kim is now, he's, he's much older, obviously. He's, he's, but he, he's been to my home recently, a few years ago. He plays golf with my dad now. And I actually asked him, Dr. Kim, do you remember taking care of me all those years ago? And you know what he said? He looked at me and just walked away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these senior doctors, they don't have time for little kids. Probably in his late 80s, 90s. He just looked at me and he's like, what are you talking? And he walked away. He didn't even answer me with a baby, right? But that's what we need. Old fashioned care. Now he worked harder than most doctors today. Mm-hmm. I bet you he worked like 80, 90 proverbial. When I went into medicine, our parents would tell us, you're giving yourself into the life, into the service of others. Mm-hmm. You're going to work so much, not see your family, but that's what doctors do. So are we working harder than the doctors of Dr. Kim's era and generation? I doubt it. I don't think so. I think they worked harder. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they made more. I don't know. Man, but is that sustainable for, for us? But why are we burned out all of a sudden? Are we always burned out? Are we more burned out than Dr. Kim was? He didn't seem burned out to me at all. Mm, In fact, that's a good point. I bet you he's not. So I suspect it's maybe culture or expectations, maybe insurance. So it's everything else except medicine. It's mm. probably all the paperwork, the EMRs, the standardization perhaps is part of the killer, right? <laughs> right? This thing that I'm talking about, it's a, it cuts both ways. Yeah. So how do we make, I think doctors don't mind working hard and caring mm-hmm. patients. They don't like doing silly things. Yeah. 
nuisance. Totally. So like, we take those like sending faxes, right. which uh, my residents still do. <laughs> Unbelievable. Right. Yeah. But you're right. I think we need to fix that part of it. It's not AI. It's not technology. Everyone thinks telemedicine is going to fix it. It's not. It's values yeah. and culture. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing at just at City MD, kind of since you're, I've, I've been dying to ask you yeah. how you thought about design when the workflow of the workplace and culture. It, it's so intimately related because of the various shapes of real estate that we could rent or lease or build out. Mm-hmm. We have square locations, we have locations that are long and narrow, we have ones where the receptionists never see the back end doctors, mm-hmm. and it's amazing to me how form of the office, structured office plays into inter-office morale, patient care. And so it's remarkable to me when we have open communications between the back and front. Yeah. There's less distrust. We have offices that are long and narrow where the front receptionists always yell at the back people. The back people always think the front people are not doing their job. It's, it's amazing how the design of the physical environment of the built environment impacts the occupant behavior of those spaces. And there's work done by Mass Design Group, an architecture group at, in Boston, and also with a research group at Harvard, where they looked at the design of labor and delivery units and how different layouts actually impacted C-section rates, which is crazy. Like holding all other things constant, that, that simple design, maybe with the labor and delivery nurses were in relationship with the with the patients, I, I think about right now, our group at my lab, we're doing a research study with the architecture group and with a, a professor at University of Art to focus on virtual reality and looking at using VR to see if there's a correlation between the built environment and burnout in emergency medicine physicians. So I think it's such an untapped um, area of research of looking at how the layout of our built environment impacts everything from patient experience to physician experience. Happiness. Yeah. It, and it makes a difference. If the staff aren't happy, how are you going to deliver good care? It's not just aesthetics. So where are you at right now? Like, are you still with CDMD? What are you up to these days? No, I'm still on the board at CityMD, but as of 2019, at the end of 2019, I'd left. CityMD merged with an incredible practice called Summit Medical Group in New Mm -hmm. Jersey. Um, They're about 100 years old. We were 100 months old, we like to joke, and uh, combined 200 locations plus now and, I don't know, probably about 1,500 physicians, maybe more. So that's thriving on the leadership of Dr. Jeffrey LeBenger. And so I left at the end of 2019. And me and my another former college roommate, college friend buddy, the nun. Yeah, he was like a freshman when we were senior. <laughs> I know. <laughs> another another Wharton guy, super smart, with like a four GPA. Yes, he was. So he he had he ended up um, leading healthcare and retail globally at Warburg Pincus, a private equity firm, and that was the firm that uh, invested in CityMD. And so we both left around the same time. And we formed a private equity group called Ascend Capital Partners, Ascend Partners. And uh, we invest in vulnerable populations. Hmm. And we raised a fund and we invest in physician practices and or technologies that care for vulnerable populations, now, particularly hmm. here in New York. And it turns out when we looked at the populations that are vulnerable, it's inevitably the old and the poor. Hmm. 
which tend to be Medicare and Medicaid by definition. And in New York, these tend to be ethnic physician groups with ethnic patients because hmm. that's who's on Medicaid and that's who's poor, whether it's Hispanic or African-American or Asian or Chinese. And so we've invested in these particular groups and one in particular we're partnered with in, in the Bronx called Essen Medical, an incredible practice led by a fabulous Dr. Sunny Segal. Mm -hmm. In the Chinese community, we have a practice called Render Care. It actually means R-E-N-D-R, but it's actually a Chinese word for dignity and, and, and care. Other such practices. And the theme here is in the Medicare, Medicaid space, we're working together in a colony-like behavior is important. How do we get practices to standardize workflows and therefore data sets, therefore working with government payers to deliver better quality care for our doctors and patients? That seems so, like such a unique investment area. And to me, I don't know nothing. I don't know anything about business at all. But to me, it's, it doesn't seem like it makes sense. You're investing in vulnerable populations, which, are, which usually the payers are not paying enough. <laughs> so like, how, how does that even make sense? Yeah, it actually does make a terrific amount of sense. So it's interesting in the, what we call the wealthier commercial world where employer-based, like if you work yeah. at Goldman Sachs uses Blue Cross Blue Shield to pay for your yeah. care. It seems like that's what you'd want to invest in. That typically is where the money has all gone to invest in, to the computer systems, the, the fabulous marketing and the facilities. But that's the world where, quite honestly, coordination of care is not as important. So mm -hmm. coordination of care is really important to scale and make efficient and work with data to work with government in the Medicare, Medicaid, the government space. Mm -hmm. So this is the area of healthcare that needs the most investment and most collaboration. Ironically, it gets the least. Mm -hmm. And so you have... Windows 95 in so many offices across this population. And the government and payers are asking them to collaborate, collect data and work. We have Windows 95. You guys have no idea. What's Come on, going. you're kidding me. I'm not kidding. Still. Some of them do. <laughs> but something equivalent to that. Wow. So where the investment for data and collaboration is most required, historically, there's been very little investment. In areas where there needs to be less, there's unlimited investment. And so we do believe that by investing in the space, there is good to be done that is scalable, predictable, profitable, and sustainable. We know that for sure. What is your process for looking at one of these practices and going, hey, this is a good one. They're going to succeed. Like, do you have some sort of uh, report card <laughs> that, that you do or some sort of scoring system? Yeah. Yes and no. The, our job is we believe that we can make people better. So one approach historically for other practices has been we only take the best, most cooperative doctors mm. and have them join us. So we're the best of the best. Now, that's easy. You take the best Michael Jordans from every team. Of course, you're going to be great. That's not magic. That's called just being good at resourcing and recruiting. The magic is when you take the bad players or the people that are not great today and put in systems that make him better. Now, they don't ever have to be Michael Jordans, but if they're 20%, 30%, every time they come and join your system predictably better, that's magic. Mm -hmm. And so we believe that our systems, so we're not gonna just cherry pick the best. Of course we want great doctors, 
But success for us looks like if we make people better, and that's what the systems that we, in, in our practice with one large pair, we've increased our quality score from four, from 3.15 stars to 4.7 stars in four, four months. And it's, it may or may not mean a lot to those that are listening, but it's a measure of quality scores as measured by my government NCQA. And it works through very basic industrial non-medical techniques of standardization, mm. Mm. workflow management, priority setting. A couple of last questions here. Are you still working crazy 80, 90, 100 hour weeks? No, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> what what is your what's your typical day to day look like these days? I, I think we all still work a lot of hours, but it's <laughs> differently. It's different, but it's fun when you're able to take the lessons learned from a prior experience yeah. and find it to be applicable and transferable to another very needed space. It's rewarding, so it doesn't feel like work. A lot of the former city MD guys are over here as well, and it's amazing the lessons learned there of scaling systems apply in primary care in what we call a CityMD was a de novo market. Every time we opened, it was ours. We did it our way and that was it. In mm. primary care, it's different. You got to get doctors that are working together that were independent for 20 years and bringing them together and getting married. That's a very different um, skill set to getting doctors to work together than what we did. But nonetheless, a lot of the skill sets transfer and we find it incredibly rewarding to be able to help and scale. So we're not going to solve the world's problems, but if we can take care of more people for the same amount of dollars, better. More Walmarts, more targets, less Neiman Marcuses. Mm. We're not going to decrease the healthcare dollar, but if we can give it, distribute it more evenly to more people, that's a win. And how many patients a year does CityMD take care of? Last year, it was obviously, it was, it was 3 million the year before. So last year what? it was something like six. I might be a little off, but it was quite a lot in COVID. Wow, unbelievable. Well, my, my biggest regret was not hanging out with you in 2005 and go, Hey, I want to be a part of this like urgent care thing that, that you're doing. It's probably a big mistake. Oh my God. <laughs> but my, I think you were still, uh, I was were, still, I was a, a, a chief resident. At, at timing, was this, right? I was like, what is this urgent care thing? I'm like, and Rich is like, I don't know. We had, off the we, deep we, end. I think we asked you, we love, we asked you actually. <laughs> no, I don't think you asked me. Were you going, I was like, I was like, I'm going into an academic life, you know. Right. And you did your ultrasound fellowship, and you I went did, and that. then I just stayed on in academic sense. I'm still working overnight shifts in the emergency room, you which did. I enjoy. <laughs> this is great. Like what you're doing now is so interesting, so fabulous. It is. It's unique. I know that Bonku is never going to be vanilla. It just Bonku <laughs> is never vanilla. So true to form. This is interesting. I love it. Well, well, thanks so much, Rich, for uh, coming on the show. It's so good to connect again. It's been a while and so happy to hear from you and so impressed by the work that you've done. Appreciate you. Thank you, Bob. It's good to see you again. You can reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, or email. My Twitter account is at B-O-N-K-U. Instagram is at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. My email is bon at designlabpod.com. I love hearing from our listeners. The Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. Hopefully, we'll see you next week.